0: The Reimagining Development podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people, or part of coastal Sydney, and the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people of Canberra, and a number of others across this country. We give our thanks and pay our respects to all Indigenous people. Sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Development, conversations on the new development policy. This series is brought to you by Goodwill Hunters in collaboration with the Australian Council for International Development, or ACFID. As the name spells out, this breakout series is all about the new development policy. It's an opportunity for us to think critically about how we want this policy to be as it will pave the way for how we do development over the coming years. I'm Rachel Mason-Nunn, founder of Goodwill Hunters and director with Equity Economics.
1: And I'm Jessica McKenzie, ACFID's Chief of Policy and Advocacy. Most of us in the development world have spent the past couple of months deep in thought and conversation about how the new development policy should look. And the aim of this podcast is to bring those conversations to you. We're casting a wide lens on the aid, development, and humanitarian sector. This series brings together established thought leaders, emerging thought leaders, exciting new voices and perspectives from around the sector and beyond.
0: Now, I'm doing something we don't do too often on Goodwill Hunters today. I'm repeating a guest, a guest who was last on the show back in 2019. And life has changed dramatically for this guest, as well as all of us. 2019 was was pre-COVID, of course. Uh, But back when I interviewed this guest, I called him Pat. And now he's Minister Pat Conroy, Minister for International Development and the Pacific and Minister for Defence Industry. Pat is an economist by training. And he's been in Parliament since 2013 and since then has spent time as the Shadow Minister for Climate Change and Energy, for Infrastructure, and most recently as Shadow Minister for International Development and the Pacific. Welcome back, Minister Conroy. It's great to have you here.
2: Oh, thanks for having me, Rachel and uh, Jess. And you can still keep calling me Pat. Uh, DFAT refused to call me Pat and the Department of Defence most definitely doesn't, but um, you're very welcome to call me Pat.
0: <laughs> well, thank you, Pat. Uh, That that matches the hopefully informal nature of this conversation. Uh, Now, I listened to our previous interview this morning as a bit of a refresher, and among many other interesting points that you made, you talked particularly about your vision for the portfolio should Labor be successful at the next election, which, of course, you were. You talked about your desire for an increasing aid budget, the revitalization of DFAT, You talked about a greater emphasis on leveraging multilateral and private finance and a focus on human development. And you also talked a lot about your commitment to addressing climate change, as well as your desire to see a national security justification for aid. So I'm looking forward to unpacking some of those points with you today. But first, I want to ask you a more abstract question. I don't know if you're the kind of person that has a word of the year if not, I'm going to put you on the spot now. What What is your word of 2023 or sort of a north star for how you want this year to go?
2: It, it, it's an interesting question because I, I don't really deal in abstracts. I'm sort of a very brutally straightforward person, much to sometimes my own personal cost. But um, if, if I was forced to think of a word, I think it's opportunity. I think that's what I'm really focused on in this portfolio is the opportunity that um, a really well-resourced and well-thought-out international development policy can do to provide opportunity for some of the world's most dispossessed and marginalised people. And so that's going to be my north star this year.
1: Hello, Minister. Um, Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to you. As we said at the start, the purpose of this podcast series is to create some debate and discussion around this new development policy. And I think it's incredibly fitting that your word is opportunity. That seems to me to really bookmark what I think a lot of us are feeling. This is a really interesting window of opportunity for international development in Australia, the first really big window in in many years. Um, And thank you also for the opportunity to submit um, to the review, which we've just been doing, and we all appreciated that. In 2019, there was the chance for most of the sector to think about what we'd like an international development policy to look like, and that really got truncated. It never came to pass because COVID occurred, of course, and then we had partnerships for recovery. So now, a few months into this process, what are your thoughts and reflections on the new development policy?
2: Well, I think think without prejudging where where we're going to land, and um, so far the process has been, I think, really, really well received. There's a lot of enthusiasm out there that you alluded to. I think we've had... um, North of 200 submissions, we've had 300 different organisations be part of the consultation process, both within Australia and importantly in the countries that we partner with in development. And what I'd like to see is sort of building on what Rachel summarised my approach in 2019, which is putting humans back at the heart of development. uh, I think it's critical, uh, listening and acting on the priorities of our development partners. Uh, allocating more resources to development, and that's obviously something we've already done through the October budget, and really using every, I think, opportunity to centre development, make development at the centre of not just the government's foreign policy, but our approach to our broader national security. And this is not about securitising aid. That's something I'm firmly opposed to. But it's something where I think... The more development gets discussed at the National Security Committee of Cabinet, the better for everyone because it should not be sort of an appendix to our deliberations with how we engage with the rest of the world. It should be at the heart of what we do. And and that's what I'm beginning to see under um, this new government and it's what I am very confident the new development policy will sort of cement into our sort of operating procedure.
0: Mm. I was in Canberra for the Australasian Aid Conference along with many others in the sector at the end of November um, 2022 and at the same time submissions were due for the new policy and you could really sense the energy and the optimism that that our sector has and, and so many made submissions and you know, many of the conversations at the conference were about those submissions. And there really was a clear energy optimism and sort of a sense of revitalization um, amongst many. Um, just just having had the opportunity to contribute to this new policy. So I wonder how are you hoping it might look without, of course, prejudicing what, what will come out, as you say the new policy isn't um, isn't isn't prepared yet, but how are you hoping it might look? And also how are you hoping it will feel for us as a sector?
2: Well, I think uh, if I can answer the second question first, I hope how the sector feels is listened to. Like the, the, there isn't one uniform view about what our development policy is. There's a fervent debate out there, and that's good. Um, that, that increases contestability of ideas, but I, I want people to feel listened to and respected. And I think that's really important. And I also think that while we have to actually make sure that the policy flows through into operations, like this is how we will operate. But I do want to go back to, and I want the policy to be very strong on why do we invest in overseas development assistance? Why do we invest in aid? And it's something that at the ACFED conference I talked a lot about, and I think it's something that ministers haven't talked enough about, which is the moral case for aid. There's a national security case for aid that I talked about in 2019 on the podcast There's the the sort of economic development case for aid, the fact that um, so many of our um, biggest markets for our products were once developing nations that we assisted. There's the sort of international diplomatic case for aid. But for me, the most fundamental is the moral case for aid. We have a human, we have an obligation as a human being and a society of compassionate people to lift people out of poverty, to help eradicate diseases that are killing kids in countries not too far from Australia that we've eradicated in Australia. And so for me, the first um, objective of the new development policy is to articulate w- why we do aid. And then we talk about how we do aid and what sort of sectors we're going to concentrate on. And obviously, one thing that I've been very strong on in the three and a half years I've been in this portfolio is to really invest in human capital. So infrastructure investment is incredibly important and we'll keep doing that. but investing in good health education outcomes for people investing in fighting for gender equality for disability inclusion for dealing with climate change just investing in human beings i think is what i want to be at the heart of our development policy
0: mm. and i have i've heard you speak vocally about the the moral case and the the moral impetus for our aid program and um, you did speak back in 2019 to me about your desire to also pursue a national security justification Mm. for aid though does that remain your desire
2: oh completely and there's a there's a quote that i sort of paraphrase from um general mathis uh from um the the us who said that if you cut the state department budget you better give me more money to buy bullets and uh that that's a gross simplification of what he was trying to say but it's very true that um, the best way we have a stable and prosperous region, uh, which is in our national security interest, is by investing in the development of our neighbours. 22 of of our 26 nearest neighbours are developing countries. Therefore, there is a huge national security justification for aid. um, And we continue to pursue that. And that's recognised. When I'm talking to the Department of Defence and their and officials about wearing my other hat as Minister for Defence Industry, and I'm talking about how I we advance the national security objectives of Australia, they just don't talk about what we need to do in defence. They say you need to increase and invest in aid. You need to invest in defect capability because they go hand in hand. And so I, I think there is a compelling case for uh, the national security uh, case for aid. And just to give you two... Two concrete examples, Uh, one that's been massively destabilising around the world and is, um, I think, a a key instigator of so much misery is one of the key drivers of the Syrian civil war that sort of um, drove millions of migrants, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of deaths, human misery on a huge scale, was that there was a prolonged drought that drove huge movement of Syrian um, rural population into the cities, destabilising their cities and leading to the civil war. Um, if aid had been more effective and in more quantities, that might have been mitigated. Another example closer to home, when we have tens of thousands of cases of drug-resistant tuberculosis in a country very close to our border, that's a national security threat for Australia, and that's a case for foreign aid.
1: I completely agree. There's all these different lenses you can apply to why we do what we do. Speaking of the moral case for aid minister, and we were talking about why it's needed, you just gave some great examples there. From what we understand, there's this $4.2 trillion financing gap if we're meant to achieve the SDGs. And I like to think of us as an ecosystem of people. It's not just the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade that's meant to be delivering on this or managing contractors or the UN or the NGO sector. Really, we're all part of this big ecosystem trying to solve it. And I include the private sector in that. So you've done something that's brand new in your seven months as minister. You've announced a development finance review for the first time. And that's really interesting to me because it underpins a lot of what the new development policy should be looking at. So I'd like to ask you about that, if that's okay. It's arguably not as visible as the development policy, but it's pretty important to work out how and where the funds for development will come from. So can you tell us a little bit about that, please?
2: Yeah, sure, and I'm really excited about it because it's something that, as you said, isn't mm. up there in lights, but I think if we get it right, could be as impactful as increasing our, our direct public investment in aid. There are hundreds of billions of dollars of philanthropic uh, funds floating around the world, and if we got just a tiny share in our region, that would have a massive impact on human development in the Pacific in, um uh, Southeast Asia and other places. So this review is really focused on two things, and there's two areas of finance that I really think we need to do a lot more on. One is attracting philanthropic donations. There's lots of private foundations. You've got the giving pledge that certain billionaires are pushing and other things. So how do we change our policy settings to make our area, our region, more attractive for that philanthropic activity? And how do we partner with it where it makes sense? The second aspect, which is slightly different, is how do we change our policy settings to support and partner on impact investing? So so I know you and Rachel know all about this, but for your listeners who don't, impact investing still has to provide a reasonable rate of return. The investment has to generate a profit, but it's profit investing in things that have an impact of a social nature, that has a social good. That could be gender equality, that could be repairing the environment. And it's an area where I think we're underdone in terms of looking at our laws, our taxation system, our partnering perspectives to make sure that we support impact investing in our region as well. I had a really productive meeting with um, um, the sort of council superannuation trustees on this issue quite recently because they're interested in, in this as well. So for me, the finance review is doing two things. How do we capture and support philanthropic work, but how do we support impact investing?
1: Brilliant, because I think of it as three pillars in a way. There's loans that we give to countries when they're in need, as we did during COVID, and the department's already got that covered. We have a lot of established loans. Then there's the philanthropics, which we're really embryonic on. We've done a few partnerships, but not many. And they're just such a big group of people to be able to work alongside. And if we can really align what we're doing, there's enormous potential there. And then impact investing completely agree, especially when we're sharing similar goals as a lot of the private sector. A lot of people are looking at green energy, particularly in Southeast Asia. And some of the programs I see where you invest $1 of ODA, you can see as many as $3 attracted from the private sector. So it's a way of really amplifying what you're trying to do and really getting the private sector to pay for our development outcomes in a way.
2: That's right, and It's one where governments, because of our resources, our the flexibility that comes from being sovereign nations, have the ability to be pathfinders for private investment and make the first investment to give people confidence. Like um, the Australian government, no matter who is in power, has a very strong reputation. Like Australia has a great reputation as being a stable, rational place to make decisions. And so when we invest in a project in a neighbour, that gives private investors confidence in it. And it also um, gives us other public sector. So, for example, while it's more wearing my Pacific hat rather than the international development, although I think there's a strong role for it, when we supported Telstra acquiring Digicel to really underpin and expand digital communications in the Pacific, that then gave confidence for the US um, Development um, Finance Corporation and the Japanese Development Bank to co-invest in that. So it's a way where we can be a pathfinder given where it's located in the region, we're the biggest country in the region and we can really be a pathfinder for a private sector.
1: I completely agree and it's it's just so invigorating to hear someone in your position talking about these things and I I really welcome the first review of its kind for Australia. I think it couldn't be more timely. I think also um, if we're the ones who are investing early, in the riskiest projects that meet all of our criteria for development outcomes, we can really lead the sector. We're sort of playing a a shaping role for the market, if you will. Um, So we've got these two reviews, there's the development finance review and there's the development policy review, which sits above it really. And and I thought one would come before the other, but I think they're now sort of intertwined. What are we all gonna be doing differently as a result of these reviews?
2: Well, the, the development finance review will feed into the development review. So that they are sequenced. Um, but uh, what's going to change is, one, I think there's going to be a whole of government ownership of our development policy. I think there were some good people in the last government, so this isn't a political point. There, there were good people committed to um, uh, foreign aid and, and international development. But I think the last government had really two groups of people. Well, people who are opposed to foreign aid and there were people who supported foreign aid but were scared of talking about it. And that's why I think one of the reasons they had temporary targeted um, increases in the foreign aid budget after $11.8 billion worth of cuts rather than permanent increases. So one of the things this development review will do is it will go through the National Security Committee of Cabinet. It will be signed off by Cabinet. Cabinet will own this policy. And that means that we'll be putting development policy at the heart of the Australian government's policy. um, And that I think is really important. And secondly, it'll link into the rest of the government's activities. So there's development activities that occur in other portfolios that we don't call development, but they exist and they're really powerful. And so the development policy will really bring those together as well, shine a spotlight on them and say, These are other activities that the Australian government does to support development, and we're proud of that. That's a good thing. Then thirdly, it will mobilise the the community sector and the private sector more effectively than we have in the past. And and I think that's uh, another thing that will be done differently. This won't be a sectarian debate about whether we use development contractors or NGOs or multilateral organisations like the UN. This is about saying we need to partner more effectively And that's what we will be doing. Uh, One really big hobby horse I have out of the development policy, which I bore people with a lot is, one of the KPIs is that we'll invest more in local capacity and local content. This is what I call the double dividend. For when we do invest in an infrastructure project um, in in a country, say in the Pacific, I want as much as possible for there to be local content to get a second economic dividend around the infrastructure and to do proper skills transfer. I am sick of projects where um, we haven't done adequate skills transfer so that in a couple of years' time the infrastructure has broken down. That doesn't help Australia's reputation and doesn't help the country we're partnering. So then, that's just a taste of some of the areas that I really want to see movement after the development policy is released.
0: Mm. I think the the double dividend point is a is a really important one. Um and I think what's interesting about it as well is we are uniquely situated in a region with a huge youth population and accordingly there is much entrepreneurship in our region, um, in the Pacific and in Southeast Asia. And there have been initiatives that have seen Australia tap into that entrepreneurship and try and foster the ecosystem that supports it. But I think when we also think about the double dividend and the skills transfer, we're also forced to think about how can we continue to foster entrepreneurship and small business throughout the region?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I was at a um, uh, a reception for small and big business um, managers and owners in Honiara and Solomon Islands when I was there in September this year and I was talking to a, a guy, who, a young gentleman, who developed an app because one of the big challenges for the primary producers in Solomon Islands, people who make uh, Coca-Cola or uh, coffee or other things, is they often don't have enough produce to fill an entire container by themselves. So he's developed an app where they can aggregate and get enough so, um, materials enough exports to send an entire fill an entire container to ship to Brisbane or wherever. So supporting local entrepreneurship is really important, and it's critical. And then um, really supporting their growth model both internally in their country and also in Australia. We should be buying more products from countries in the Pacific, for example. But that also means investing in supporting their biosecurity so that there, those products can be safely imported.
0: Mm, yeah. We are uniquely placed to support entrepreneurship and impact investing as well, as you've already touched on. Um, the other big initiative that we've heard in the last seven months is is around the pursuit of a First Nations foreign policy, which at this stage remains quite, I would say, vague um, in the absence of sort of a detailed plan around what that's going to look like, which is, of course, a a really sensitive but very important initiative to pursue but it is another area where australia is uniquely positioned to to share and partner and, and cooperate with the region tell us a bit about that
2: yeah well this is a part of our foreign policy that i'm so proud of that's been driven by foreign minister penny wong which is a first nations approach to uh, our foreign policy because we have to recognize and we're proud we're proud of the fact that for at least eighty thousand years, we've had we've got the longest um, continuous culture in the world. But this is a culture of traders and diplomats. You look at the north of Australia trading with the islands to our north. So we really want to inject that wisdom and approach into not only how we do um, conventional foreign policy, but also development. First step is appointing a First Nations ambassador, and um, uh, we're very we're got that process underway, and I think we'll we'll be appointing someone relatively soon, and then that will help drive the development. But it's informing things. So, for example, I was in Vanuatu with Foreign Minister Wong um, only last month, and we were talking to people in Vanuatu, both NGOs and government, about our First Nations approach and how that's changing the way we're doing things, investing more in personal relationships, taking a longer time horizon, really recognising the link between culture and environment and focusing on climate change as as well. So it's already informing our approach, and that will be turbocharged when we get our uh, uh, First Nations ambassador. And and in the meantime, so, for example, um, Penny took um, Senator Patrick Dodson, the father of reconciliation, to the UN General Assembly uh, in their annual meetings in September. And um, I know that that had a huge impact, having Patrick Dodson with his wisdom an insight really not just representing Australia but uh, really imparting that to other countries representatives.
1: Mm. I think that was a really proud moment for a lot of us. Minister you're talking about a few things that are spurring ideas for me so there's the time horizon shift that you're talking about and doing things differently through our approach to a First Nations foreign policy. In my mind I'm linking that also to what you were talking about local content in the places we work and the double dividend And we've been trying to do capacity building, which is a term I also don't really love, but we've been trying to do that for decades. So if we're going to be doing more locally led work, if we're going to be empowering the people who are, you know, the entrepreneurs coming up with these apps for how to fill the shipping container, we've been trying to do that well for a long time. What's going to be different about this? Because as you were speaking, I started thinking a lot of this stuff comes back to risk appetite in-house i'm a sucker for bureaucratic reform as boring as it is i think that's really where a lot of this stuff lies it's a way of doing things differently and it's sort of thinking through the systems and processes we have for managing these things and i think it's great that the new development policy is going to go through cabinet i think that's going to be a really important step for placing development at the heart but what other sorts of initiatives in-house will we be doing to make these things possible or can you not speak to that yet
2: Oh, no, well, I, I can give you a flavour of it. And one of them is, what's my main job? My main job beyond policy development is implementation. That's why you have um, junior ministers there. We've got our policy responsibilities working in conjunction with our cabinet ministers, but we've got the space to do the implementation. My job is to drive implementation. So, for example, right. um, it's my job in the, pol- in the Pacific space to really drive implementation of the whole of the government's agenda on the Pacific, which isn't just about international development. is isn't just about combating climate change. That doesn't give me authority in those other departments. that, That would be inappropriate. But it's my job to bring the threads together and really oversee the implementation of that. And it's the same with development, to bring people together. So the example I used earlier about how do we support the economic development of some of our Pacific partners, it's boosting their exports. What's one of the best ways we can boost their exports is to help them establish appropriate biosecurity regimes so that we can buy their products without importing um, pests and and so forth. So that's one where I then work closely with Senator Murray Watt, our Minister for Agriculture, in how do we invest in um, biosecurity regimes in, in countries. Or another program that I'm evangelical about, the Pacific Australia Labor Mobility Scheme, that's lifting tens of thousands of people out of poverty, we're expanding that into the aged care sector. So I'm working really close with Mark Butler and Annika Wells on that program. So for me, particularly in development, it's not just having a silo of development saying, we spend $4.5 billion a year on development assistance. That's what we're going to do. That's our only policy to lift people out of poverty, to help get rid of preventable diseases, to help combat climate change in in countries we partner with. No, it's linked to our broader efforts on climate change. Yes, it's linked to our broader efforts on trading. So one thing that I'm particularly proud of, and I'm sorry to wrap it on, but we're going down lots of sort of burrows here. One of our first actions um, as a government was to intervene and support really um, aggressively efforts by Pacific countries to to deliver the WTO Treaty on Fisheries Subsidies. That hit a stalemate in the Geneva negotiations. And Australia actually intervened through um, one of my close mates, Tim Ayers, the Assistant Trade Minister, to support it and actually provide a circuit breaker in partnership with um, representatives from the Pacific. That's about development. That's about saying that we're going to stop illegal fishing in the Pacific. We're going to try and prevent overfishing in the Pacific because these are resources owned by the people of the Pacific. So it's a changing attitude of the Australian government to take a whole government approach to international development that I think will really uh, be the most effective thing we can do.
1: That requires a lot of coordination to do that. So basically what we're talking about there is a whole lot of different functions that all feed into one another across different areas of supply chains Mm. as well. And so I'm hoping that one of the things the new development policy will we'll look at is really long time horizons for how we approach this stuff. That doesn't mean we're not efficient and we're not being held to good KPIs. But I think moving beyond this three-year contracting model would be really great and having multi-year flexible funding. Mm -hmm. But one thing you said at the ACVID conference that really stuck with me, you mentioned Minister... The hard question you're asking of the department is, is our choice of delivery mechanism driven by what is the right approach to maximise effectiveness or because we lack the in-house capacity? And so I'm thinking through what you're saying just then. Are we even able to know what the right approach is to maximise effectiveness? I feel like we've been so hollowed out lately that we haven't always been able to spend the time learning. We've just been so busy delivering. Mm. Do you think we're ready for that?
2: Well, we've got a capacity review going on right now within DFAT that hopefully will Um, provide some answers to that question and I think this is I think this is the more legitimate debate about using facilities and using international contractors is are we using these mechanisms because we want to access either the flexibility of a facilities approach or the expertise of international contractors or are we doing it that way because we don't have the expertise in-house and so for me that's a critical question, and is I think it will be critical to the success of our development policy, is does DFAT have the skills and capacity um, we need it to have, and um, does it have effective partners in NGOs, in contractors, in multilateral organisations that can really help deliver the aid? And uh, I, I say it cheekily because sometimes um, um, it gets some Moses out of joint We've gone past the age of unscrambling the egg and pulling AusAid out of DFAT. I want the opposite. I want AusAid to take over DFAT. I want, I want. there's your headline for your podcast, um, I want not just new grads in DFAT having rotations through development. I want it to be a critical um, requirement for promotion into the SES and at a deputy secretary level. Like, I, I'm not a DFAT historian, but... Um, We've got an enormously large number of DFAT deputy secretaries that have strong development expertise, Uh, and that's a great thing. And I think the more of that, the better.
1: Oh, that's wonderful to hear. I love it, taking over. I would also just say you've got plenty of friends in the NGO sector who can help you deliver, and I think it's also really about activating the people within the department. I think there's lots of wonderful people and it's making sure they're activated to be able to deliver the way they'd like to.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And feel like they don't have to be in hiding. Aid is not a dirty word under this government. It's a word we're proud of. We're out and proud about it. And we're going to sing it from the rooftops. So and we're going to have disagreements. Like, I know there are people who want us to find more money in the budget for aid. And I respect their view. And I'm very open to having an honest and open conversation about that rather than shouting down stakeholders.
1: And, Minister, as a former OZEDer, I have to ask you want AusAid not just back, but in charge? <laughs> absolutely (laughs) I love it
0: (laughs) Rachel before I get too excited over to you No, I'm I'm just as excited, Jess. I Minister, I think the last question I wanted to ask you is: you've been on a, a listening tour in the Pacific since coming to office, and I, I know you've had lots of interesting conversations with our Pacific family. I'm keen to get a sense of what what those have been like. What are you hearing? Um, and 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 how are, are your Pacific counterparts feeling about um, the new policy and what's on the horizon?
2: I I think without putting words in the mouth of my Pacific counterparts, I think um, they they are relieved to have a new Australian government that is listening and respecting. And the biggest example of that is climate change. Uh, We couldn't engage properly in the Pacific while we had a government that rejected the science of climate change, that not only didn't take action on climate change within Australia, but actively um, blocked um, action at the Pacific on climate change. So I think that's opened the door to having more substantive conversations and then being very honest with people about um, what are their priorities? What are the priorities for our development partnership and then acting on that? And then I've had a really enjoyable six months um, visiting countries and understanding more about the impact of our development. So visiting a um, health clinic in um, the Central District in Papua New Guinea, watching kids being vaccinated. Like, I I went back and I had a sort of all staff meeting at the uh, High Commission in PNG, um, uh, which is our, I think it's our second biggest post around the world, second or third biggest, and I said, your actions are saving people's lives. You're helping vaccinate kids and prevent diseases that are uh, all but eliminated in Australia. So getting to see that, visiting, um, uh, a refurbished, rebuilt high school, Honiara um, High School, where we, with New Zealand, uh, built new computer or rebuilt their computer laboratories after they got burnt down uh, during the riots. I talked to a, I think they got sixth form over the year 12 in Australia, uh, a young woman called Joanna who was working on a computer and she was telling me she wants to go to uni and become a lawyer. And so seeing... These examples of where we're supporting the development of the potential of people is just so powerful. Um, and so for me, one the first thing I say whenever I engage with a Pacific counterpart is how can we do better? What are your priorities and how can we respond to your priorities? Because it's about empowering people rather than dictating to people.
1: I often think about what Australia's comparative advantage is and I know that we had the Partnerships for Recovery that expired in June. Before that, we had the 2017 Foreign Policy White Paper. Before that, we had Labor's last effort, which was the 2011 aid policy, which was really robust. And a lot of the comparative advantage that that spoke to was Australia's expertise in PFM and bureaucratic reform our being a lender, uh, sorry, a <laughs> lead on gender equality, agriculture and water. We're making really interesting forays into impact investing and our COVID response has been stellar. I just wanted to ask, what do you think our comparative advantage is compared to others in this space?
2: Well, I think I think all of those are, are really valid and I think our history matters. We, like our history of people-to-people connections, like we are talking about First Nations policy before, but just our broader people-to-people connections are great, but also I just think a more fundamental values-based approach to aid. So I get I I get asked regularly, I've got asked at the ActFit conference, um, would we partner with certain countries? Uh, sorry, it's the ANU Dev Policy Conference. Um, what's our position on partnering with other countries? And I was able to articulate what are our core values that drive our aid program? And um, there's sort of five or six key points. One is it's the priorities of the countries we partner with. Two, the aid comes with no strings attached. Three, the projects are high quality. Fourth, um, we, we maximise local content. And fifth, we're transparent. And they're our critical advantages because as long as we're consistent on those things, we can build relationships and partnerships. I still go around the, the region and I see the red kangaroo of Aussie projects, and that fills my heart with joy. Um, and we just need to have a continuation of that history to develop more, be more effective, but be innovative at the same time. But I think there's a lot of real sort of Australians are still liked generally out there in the, in the world. And we, we're seen as people who come um, from a place of good values and we just got to keep continuing that up.
1: That sounds great to me, and it sounds like we have an exciting couple of years ahead, mm. if that's the case. Was there anything else you wanted to mention before I ask you when we can expect to see this policy coming out? <laughs> we imagine it's uh, going to be sometime before the budget. We know the DFAT team's hard at work. What do you think?
2: Well, I, I, I'm not going to be drawn on timelines. It'll be within 2023. Partly, it's obviously uh, making sure it goes through the cabinet process, but linked to that, quite frankly, and linked to your the previous question. Um, Jess is uh, what? What can we do differently? What's one of our comparative advantages? Is well, one of the agendas of this government is staying in power and cementing our reforms, and that's the lesson from previous Labor governments. Whether it's the the most critical one was the Hawke Keating government. We only have Medicare now was because Medicare survived four elections. So I want this development policy to survive multiple elections. So that's part of the DNA of how we do development and international policy in this country. And so, for me, that's the the key lesson in all this is words on paper are good, implementation is critical, and then surviving election after election so that it becomes just the way people operate. So that's the challenge for me as a politician and a minister. But I think if we get it right, we can be really proud of our development policy in this country.
1: Absolutely. And we'll be here to help you for every step of the way. Thank you so much for your time today, Minister. We've been Jessica McKenzie and Rachel Mason-Nunn on Reimagining Development Policy Podcast. Tune in again for more hearty conversations about how we can rework and rewire international development for future needs. Thanks again. Bye for now.